waiting until you're dead to be famous or having any kind of notoriety in your later years. I think part of that is the issue that creatives have where they're not necessarily taught ways to like bolster themselves. And especially now with social media and whatnot, the number one thing I tell everyone, it doesn't matter. You don't need to be Beyonce to have this. I have had one. I'm on the hunt for a second one. Hire a publicist. I cannot stress that enough. Nothing I'm doing now would be possible had I not hired one. And it really is just kind of, to me, the answer and the key to getting some kind of notoriety before you're dead. And if you feel stuck. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. We kicked off this year with a theme as we explored the power of art to push for change from fiction to art and even spiritual exploration. I'm thrilled to continue that thread today with a few laughs and even as we cover those serious topics that sometimes honestly just need a little comic relief. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by no stranger to the stage and a podcaster himself, Edward Miskey. From musical theater career to cancer conquistador, Edward has performed and traveled all over the country and in some cases, all over the world, celebrating his now 11-year cancer survivor anniversary with the publishing of his book, Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses. Edward has been featured on Insider, ABC, Fox, PIX11, The Daily Mail, and so much more. He also has a podcast. He's the host of I Want to Be a Rich Bitch. He's a writer, producer, singer, songwriter, and actor. Edward Miskey, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I think I might have to make this episode explicit. (laughs) (laughs) I think you might. I can reel it in. You know, I'm an adult. I don't have to think about it. I mean, who doesn't want to be a rich bitch? Tell me about that show as we get started. I mean, truly. So I co-host that with my friend Sarah Seeds. She's brilliant. She's the creator and star of Writing the D with Dr. Seeds, which was on Amazon Prime for a while. And now it's on, I believe, Plex TV. She's very heavily involved in the SAG after a union and she's on the New York Council. I'm really not trying to pitch Sarah, but she's so amazing and I'm in awe of her constantly. But we wanted to start a podcast together to kind of talk about like the journey that creatives often take in the confines of the conversation of money. I'm sure you've heard the expression like, oh, starving artist or, you know, something along those lines. It just kind of implies that people who are in the arts are like poor and starving. And that can be true to a degree. I mean, certainly like depending on the path you choose, it's a struggle. It's always hard. But she and I kind of are in positions were when we started it and are again after a rocky road (laughs) where money wasn't really the problem. And the problem was just kind of like other things that were external to money. Not that either of us are like rich and rolling in it, but like it's just finding a different path for creatives where you can still make the things you want to make and have significant income to support yourself without running all over the place and working four jobs and pulling 18-hour days. I've been there. I've done that. I've been in New York for 18 years, and that's a good majority of my time here. And it just kind of hit me as her and my friendship became more and more. I was like, there are better ways. And I'm seeing it happen in front of me, not just with her, but other friends of mine. And we decided to create a podcast out of that and hopefully 
shed some light on how to be a rich bitch, how to like make the shit that you want and surround yourself with good people and kind of like, I guess, just self-ownership and autonomy over where you want to go and what you want to become and not having money be the thing that holds you back. Well, and as I think to your point, so many artists, especially those painters in my life, have often had this perspective that they were almost waiting to die so they could become famous, which is really sad, right? I actually heard that quote from one of my dad's best friends when I was growing up, and he actually said, when I die, I'll be famous. Take the Pablo Picassos of the world that are able to have some sort of fame while they're in their later years. I mean, there was struggle there. And even people used to criticize his cubism because, oh, well, I could paint that, but they didn't see the skill that was behind all of it and how incredible he was as an artist in so many other different ways. It's just easy to criticize. And I think that we often come from that lens when we are perhaps jealous. Jealous of the commitment to the journey, right? Well, commitment to the journey, but also seeing people who are doing what you want to be doing. Because, like, let's be real. Most people didn't grow up thinking, like, oh, my God, I want to work at a desk for 40 hours a week and just watch my life pass by. Like, that was never really anyone's aspiration. No child that you ask is going to be like, I want to work in corporate. Well, when you mentioned those 18-hour days, I've done that during my professional career, not an actor. Yeah, I mean, I've I've done it as an actor and as not an actor, and it really is kind of, in a way, a choice. But sometimes you just do what you got to do to get the things done. But I think to the point about waiting until you're dead to be famous or having any kind of notoriety in your later years, I think part of that is the issue that creatives have where they're not necessarily taught ways to like bolster themselves and especially now with social media and whatnot the number one thing i tell everyone it doesn't matter you don't need to be beyonce to have this i have had one i'm on the hunt for a second one hire a publicist i cannot stress that enough nothing i'm doing now would be possible had i not hired one And it really is just kind of, to me, the answer and the key to getting some kind of notoriety before you're dead. And if you feel stuck. Because they'll get you placed on Fox or Pix11 or get your story told by the Daily Mail. It's otherwise, what do you do? You're out there doing it yourself. And there's merit to that. Like Daily Mail contacted me because of my TikTok. Like that one was all me. And I had a couple of those. I interviewed with the Washington Post for something as well that I don't ever think made it to print because I certainly didn't see it. But like that was all from social media. But there were other things that I was being pitched for through a publicist. And that to me was money well spent. And that is also part of the conversation that Sarah and I have about money and being in your rich bitchness and all of that. Because there are appropriate places where it is okay to spend money and you really need to let go of that scarcity crap as a creative. Because like if I wouldn't have spent the money I spent on the publicist, like I wouldn't have had those articles and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Like it's just adding pieces to the puzzle. And it's I could go on about this forever because I feel very strongly about it. Well, to your point, me getting the fire lit under my ass to actually do this podcast came because one of my friends and I were talking about it. And he's like, you know what? I'm gifting you your intro and your outro. You're doing this. I'm giving you a deadline of February 1st. And I was like, oh, shit. Now I got to do it. Right. And so I will say hats off to Mikhail Alphon forever for doing that. Like he has a podcast himself and he really did put the creative fire under my butt and said, get it done. You have the idea. You want to do it. You should. You have all the things that you need to do it. You just need to commit. And so I'm glad that I did that. 
it was a struggle at first to even think about spending the money on something that I wasn't planning to make money doing. But I have since just kind of let it ride in a way and said, okay, well, I'm going to look at this as my way of paying it forward and of giving back. So I might spend a few hundred dollars. Well, you know, frankly, it's more like $800 to $1,000 a month. (laughs) (laughs) But I cover much of my expenses. Some of my guests who come on make donations to the show, which is really, really helpful. And I keep it rolling. I have interesting conversations with people like you and leaning into something that was really uncomfortable for me at first, especially to be on camera, because I think that's what it takes sometimes to really grow. You have to have the faith. You have to have someone who kind of lights the fire under your butt and tells you you can and you should just do it. And then you have to make a little bit of investment. Sometimes that's just time, but it often comes with a little cash. I agree. Listen, I used to turn my nose up at the pay-to-play situations back in the day when I was an actor, and some of them really are scams and terrible, and you need to be vigilant about whom you're giving money to and what they're actually able to provide you and offer you, because anyone can talk and tell you exactly what you want to hear. But get the credentials, is what I'm saying. (laughs) It really is kind of the way up. Like, There's so many scenarios that I can point to with well-known celebrities that we know who had capital that they were able to spend en masse up front to buy their way to where they are now. And you know what? I'm not mad about it. If that's what you need to do to get there, then I'm willing to do that. Take my money. Right. And then we can enjoy the entertainment that they put out into the world. I think acting in particular is one of those things that you learn by doing too. You can't just suddenly have the skill set, right? Like it comes through work. You can learn the skill set from someone, but until you're actually doing it and physically like doing the things... It's totally different than being in a class or with a coach or something that's telling you what to do. It's not practical application. You can call back to those things that you learned while you're doing whatever the thing is that you're doing and be like, oh, I remember in this scenario I have to do, I have to approach it this way. And eventually that becomes second nature. But until you're actually in the act doing it, it's kind of a totally different thing. Well, here, here. Now, I want to hear about you making the commitment to write about your experience because if you get diagnosed by cancer, it's like the scariest thing that most people ever go through. Most of us have experienced it in some capacity where a family member or a close friend has had a diagnosis and has been staring down a barrel and they're like, oh, fuck, for lack of a better word. Like, what do I do? You know, that is the word, actually. (laughs) It is. Yeah, it's bad. I mean, the commitment to it didn't come until much later. I just turned 25 when I was diagnosed and it was a really fast turnaround because it was a really aggressive cancer. And like within a week, I was in a hospital on chemo, like facing mortality in a way that I never anticipated I would be at 25 years old. And what really came of it was trying to be acutely aware of what was going on around me and a lot of things that raised a lot of eyebrows along the way. And it just seemed like such a ridiculous experience. And I can look back at it now and have a good laugh and and be like, that was insane. But what really made me want to write about it is after the fact, feeling very displaced and disoriented in my own life, and then meeting someone who conveyed to me after they were told they were cancer-free that they felt the same way. And at that point, I was three years out. I had been out of the hospital for three years and I was cancer-free and trying to get my life pieces back together. And this person said to me, like, all of the ways that they were feeling. And it was a lot of along the lines of like, I don't want to go to work because it feels stupid and meaningless and I don't want to do it. And every time my friends talk to me, I'm just like, shut the fuck up. I don't care about anything that you're saying. 
and my family, they mean well, but I just want to punch him in the face sometimes. And I just was like, oh my God, you are speaking. Get out of my head. Get out of my brain space. And so it occurred to me, like, if this person feels this way and I feel this way, others probably feel this way. So I reached out to a couple people I knew who had had cancer earlier in life, and I asked them a couple questions about, like, is this how you feel? Is this what it's like? And every single one of them said yes, and how it was a process, and how no one prepared them for it, and how it was just kind of like, surprise, you're a stranger in your own life. <laughs> and at that moment, literally in the middle of this conversation, I was like, I'm writing a book about this. And at the time, I had a desk job. Again, everyone love a desk job. And during my downtime over the course of about a year, I wrote my book, like pretty much six hours a day, five days a week for a year, I would be working in some way on my book. And it just kind of fell out. Like it started out being a very long winded, let me set this up with like, I was born in the middle of a cornfield in 1980s. And I just had in the writing world, it's called kill your babies or kill your darlings. Some people like to call it. Yeah, you have to like sacrifice those pieces of the book like you thought were so important when you started writing it, right? And they're totally not because it's like no one cares. In this instance, I'm writing a book about my experience. No one cares about me because I'm not Kelly Clarkson or Beyonce or name a famous person. No one knows who I am, so no one cares. It's about the experience that they're going to care about. And so it was having that realization, killing those darlings, and then hyper-focusing on like the year-long process that it took a little longer than a year, maybe 18 months from the time the cancer appeared to the time that I was told I was good to go. Now, I have a couple of questions because I've never had cancer, luckily, that I know of. And I say that I know of because we all have like happy little cancer cells floating around our bodies, like whether or not you've been diagnosed at some point, they exist and they usually get scrubbed out by your immune system. That's what prevents you from actually manifesting having a real problem, right? But I've heard from people really close to me that they get very frustrated with people saying things like you got to beat cancer and it's a war on cancer or it's a struggle and like trying to relate to the person who is suffering from it, frankly, in that way, like it's a struggle. And they're like, look, I'm battling my own body. Like this is inside me. It's not like I'm battling some external force with a shield and a sword. It's different than that. Right. And so that they feel like people are trying to claim they understand without understanding. Is that one of the things that you heard, the frustration points? For sure. And I'll put it a little bit differently. But the thing is that when people say that, they mean well. Because what are you supposed to say to someone in that situation? It's like visiting someone on their deathbed, knowing full well that they know and you know that they're dying. You can't really be like, well, I'll see you later. Because like, no, you won't. It's just like an awkward situation. I try to give leeway and grace to people who speak to me and or who speak to others or about others who have cancer, because there really is no way to relate to it. It's a tricky situation. And one of the things that I always say about the whole, like, I'm a cancer survivor, or you beat cancer, oh my God, congratulations, you did it, is that I didn't do anything. I showed up to my appointment. From there, like, I was a rag doll, and I had doctors and nurses and fellows and residents kicking me around the hospital to where I needed to go. And I was a pincushion and a lab rat and a drug mule and like all these other things within the hospital. And I really did nothing but show up. And so to me, my surviving cancer had very little to do with me. Certainly, it, I kept the fighting to feel normal and fighting to have some kind of a life that mattered to me during that time instead of surrendering and laying down and just being like, 
well, nothing else can go on right now because I have cancer. Uh-huh. Woe is me, right? Yeah. And I really kind of ignored the fact that I was a sick person. And I still went out with friends. I drank my way through cancer, which was equal parts of coping mechanism and just wanting to like hang out with my friends and be normal. And like, I started a company while I was in the hospital and I was like art directing photo shoots on FaceTime from my hospital room. Like I was a crazy person, but it was my way of ignoring the fact that something bad was happening and trying to act as I would if I were not locked up in a hospital somewhere. Well, frankly, many doctors would agree with me in saying that that mindset is probably what helped you to be successful and your struggle too. So I would say in that way, sure, yeah, I survived cancer, I beat cancer, blah, 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 blah. But you had a mindset of a tomorrow. And sometimes people don't have that. Exactly. And it was more the fact in my mind of like focusing on, I want to have a future past this. And so how can I set myself up to have one now? And not really trying to play into the whole, I'm a patient, this is terrible, I'm going to die. That narrative was there. There was definitely like a little brain cell frittering away in the back of my head with that thought. And when my first oncologist kind of told me like, you might not make it, that was kind of a double down, really kind of when survival mode kicked in, in the sense of like, I'm going to fight for this. And it wasn't so much fighting like, I'm going to be a good boy and be vigilant. It was like, I'm getting a second opinion. Get out of my way. Give me my file. I'm walking out of this hospital. And we kind of had a little bit of a fight. And I was like, nothing you're telling me makes sense. The protocol that they wanted me to do included two rounds of full body radiation, which there's a lot to go into about this. But basically what they were saying to me sounded like because my cancer was so rare that they wanted to kind of do all these performance pieces on me because I had this cancer and it was an opportunity for them to publish a paper about it. Which could be true, you know? To be honest with you, it was. And it was so obvious. And I called her on it and she was like, well, that's just part of the gig. And I was like, right, but this isn't a gig. Like, this is my life and I don't I don't care about your paper. That's kind of one of the pitfalls you have at an education hospital as well, is that there's always that looming, we're going to write it, we're going to publish a paper about this. So that was cool. Well, normal body treatment for a rare cancer, I mean, it might help with some of the cells, but you might also get really, really sick from that treatment. Well, not just that. I mean, listener, you're not going to get the chance to see this, but like I had radiation on this side of my body, like right here on my left, like arm and underarm. And like the hair there which is very present over here, has still 11 years later not grown back. And so if that would have been a full body situation, I would look like a tortoise. And like, that wasn't the vibe I was going for when I was 25 and gorgeous. Like, (laughs) No, I mean, you don't want to be bald. I get it. I was like, I will come out of this. No, no, no. (laughs) Well, even when you have it localized, like the effect can be longer lasting. Like I have someone I actually donated breast milk to because she couldn't produce her own when she had her own natural child because she had a rare form of lung cancer and had had chest radiation before she ever became pregnant. And so it impacted her ability to ever produce milk, right? And so like these are things that come about as a side effect of treatment that can last the rest of your life. And to your point, you know, a little hair missing from your chest, that may sound like no big deal to some of the listeners here. But I mean, as a young person, that matters. That really counts. Yeah. Well, and radiation kills tissue, as you just said, like she's not able to produce breast milk. Those glands are probably forever damaged and she never will, for better or worse, depending on how you look at it. 
and the tissue on my left chest, like it barely grows tissue. Like I can work out until the day is done and it's really not going to make a whole lot of a difference. So (laughs) being 26 and having lopsided titties was kind of upsetting. There wasn't anything I could do about it. Wow, I can empathize. I try to say I'm not too vain or anything, but especially in your younger years, like when I get rather lean, I actually have a dent in one of my buttocks. And it's because I broke my tailbone when I was really young, right? Oh, interesting. Okay. And so it pulls on the tissue in one direction. And so it's only visible when I get really lean, which is not a problem today. Let me say that. But (laughs) (laughs) in my early 20s, I was like, gosh, you know, in a bikini... And it's just when you get naked, you can see it. And it's something that you kind of always have in the back of your mind, even if it is something that seems really vain. But like, be vain. It's your body. It's your body. And it's also your youth. Like, I think it was either Glenn Close or Meryl Streep or Judy Dench or one of those three magnificent women said that youth is wasted on the young. And it's so true. I look back and I'm like, I thought I was so disgusting and fat and gross. And I would literally commit murder to look like that again. Like, just point someone out to me. And if you're like, you could look like that again, I'd be like, great. What do you want me to use? (laughs) Because I looked so good. I don't really mean that literally. But like, I look back and I'm like, God damn. And at the time, I just felt like such a monster. Well, beauty is wasted on the young preps, too. It truly is. Be vain. Love yourself. What is that line from Schitt's Creek where she's like, take as many naked pictures of yourself when you're young as you possibly can? Exactly. What a good show. I mean, that show almost didn't get made, too. So what an incredible show. Now, you've actually talked about on your podcast and in other spaces being dumped during cancer, right? And this is something we alluded to a little bit earlier when you're talking about how your relationships kind of struggle as you face something like this. People don't know how to treat you, don't know how to act around you. Suddenly, things start to fall apart. So (laughs) let's talk about this. How did your relationships change? What happened there? I mean, they all changed. And that's not to say for worse. I mean, my parents, my sisters, my close friends and I, we all just got closer. There was definitely good there. That was one of the takeaways that I have from this experience that was like, has always been kind of like my shining trophy star thing, whatever you want to call it, where I'm so proud of the fact that I know who my friends are. I love my friends. And they were there for me. They were in the hospital rooms with me. My parents were there all the time. My sisters were constantly calling me. And so I had a really great support system from them during that time. And of course, like your relationship and the love that you feel for your family and friends is different than someone who's supposed to be your partner, who's supposed to be a significant other. And then you tell them the news and they pretend everything's fine. And then you find out later that they actually started seeing someone shortly after you were diagnosed and that they were just like performing a relationship for you. And like all of that on its face, and like your listeners are not going to maybe like to hear this, but all of that on its face sounds terrible. And I think our knee-jerk reaction is like, men are terrible and they're total shitbags and whatever. And that is true. They are. Like 87% of men leave in a situation like that. The statistic of that, which I will actually look up what the real number is, is staggering. It's very high. Men leave when they're faced with a situation like that. And when it was happening, I was angry and I was hurt and I couldn't believe it and I was betrayed. And I'm sure that I still have residual fallout from that now and how I pursue relationships. But at the time, it was really bad. Looking back, it was still bad. And also, I don't know what I would do in that situation because it's an impossible ask. Now, my reasoning would be different from maybe his reasoning, but 
this is someone that I had only met maybe nine months before. It's not like we had been together for years and years and years and years. That's a different conversation. But like, it was still relatively in the grand scheme of things new. It wasn't new, new. And so that's a lot to ask of someone that you, in a sense, barely know. And even though I may have felt like there was a future there, and even if he had felt that there was a future there, there was a very large ask of that person while I was in the hospital from the diagnosis point. And he had kind of been aware that something was going on. I had obviously told him, but it was the whole deception and performative pretending to be still with me when really they were with someone else. And like, I could smell it. I have a pretty good bullshit meter, but like, I didn't want to believe it because I was in a terrible situation. And one more thing going wrong, like during that period of time, especially in the early part when my oncologist was like, LOL, you might not make it. I didn't want to deal with something else falling apart. And so when it did, I had a really dark period during March of 2012 where I finally was like, I need to check into therapy like now, like today. And so I did. And that helped me get through it until it didn't. But I would say that it's something that I look at now and just I don't want to say that there's forgiveness to it, but there's understanding. Well, I mean, to your point, it's an emotional turmoil. And let's say you're newly in love and now this person that you might have envisioned this grand future with, you're every day having to look at them wondering if it's going to be six months or whatever that sentence could be in a way. So yeah, I can understand how that would be incredibly difficult. I've never had to confront it personally, but I have seen very close friends who expired from cancer. And I even ran marathons for team and training to raise funds for leukemia and lymphoma because for a while there, it seemed like I was just getting hit left and right. And young people, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, one sort or another, and some of them rare and some less so, and some onset in teenage years and then coming back later in life and stuff like that. So I ran marathons. I developed a really close friendship with one of the guys who was actually uh, one of the people we ran for, Greg Melendi. He ended up losing his life at, what, 2022, I think, after having leukemia as a kid in his teens, recovering from it, being just an awesome guy. He introduced me to the show, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and I made it my personal mission to meet the cast when I ended up at Sundance at the same time that they would be. They didn't show up to the gifting suite I was working, and so I was like super disappointed because they were on the list. And then I ended up meeting them and met them at just a restaurant after hours, walked up to them and was like, I have to talk to you for like five minutes, right? And so pulled Charlie Day aside and said, Charlie, I love your show. I love everything about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but I also knew nothing about it six months ago. And I want to tell you about the person that introduced me to your show. And so I told him about Greg Melendi and everything that I loved about him and that this kid was at Stanford Children's Hospital today and likely not going to survive. And so he took my phone from me. We're talking flip phone. It's like an LG, right? <laughs> not a flip phone. <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, it was the whole cast too, except for Danny DeVito was not there. And God, what's his name? The older brother, Dennis, he wasn't there, but everybody else in the cast was, right? And so he took my phone and he called Greg Melendi and he and all the cast members passed the phone around their whole dinner and talked in their characters to him the whole time. And then brought the phone back to me like an hour and a half later and said, I got his number. I'm going to call him again. I want you guys to come to a production. And this is when our screening schedule is happening again, made it happen. And then 
he passed away before we had that opportunity. I love hearing stuff like that, though, because it's always touch and go with people like TV film people. Like they can be really, really awesome or they can be really not. And so hearing stuff like that always makes me happy. I think if it had been me just wanting to meet them in that moment, I probably wouldn't have had the guts to go up and say anything. But I was thinking about my friend and how could I brighten his day? And wouldn't this be awesome? Right. And so I just like to say to people out there, you never know until you ask. And sometimes people will surprise you with literally how awesome they can be. And in this case, we got to give Greg a great memory before he ended up passing away. Sad story overall, right? But something that made me forever a fan of them and have faith. Totally. But to your credit, though, and I think this is something that people don't think about, and I have touched on this in the past, we're like, there were purposeful times in the hospital where we made it fun. And we did that on purpose for the reason, or we, I mean I, the royal we, of course, obviously. But like, I did that on purpose because I wanted my friends and family to be able to look back at this time should I had not made it and be like, you know what, that day was really fun. That was a good day. And like, have that kind of to hold. And also, on the flip side of that, should I had made it, which obviously I have, I could then also look back and say, you know what, that time we had a party in my room with the nurses was great. And I'm so glad that happened. And so like, to me, when you're in a situation like cancer or anytime there's a hospitalization or there's some kind of long-term terminal or chronic care involved, it's so important to create moments and memories for that reason, for whomever to look back and be like, you know what, that was a great day. That was really fun. Because that'll be one of the moments that they hold dear and they remember at the end of either your life and or that situation. Or just to disarm the moment. Like, I'll give you a for instance, um, one of my dear friends, she got into a horseback riding accident and got compound syndrome in her leg because she got squished on a solid fence during a horse show, right? So on Halloween, she ends up in the hospital. They have to slice her leg open because the compound syndrome will create so much swelling that the tissue can die. They have to let the muscle expand. So we just show up in costume because it's Halloween at the hospital. And I mean, everybody got a pretty good laugh because we had ridiculous costumes on. I think I was dressed as the Tapatio guy from the front of the Tapatio, who I named Guillermo. And I kept introducing myself as Guillermo and saying, es una salsa, muy salsa to people. It was really fun, right? Just a silly day. And I mean, part of the reason that I have been more prone to do those things is because hospitals make me uncomfortable. And I find that if I'm able to step outside of that uncomfortability by being a little silly, that it makes that visit go better for me. So in the spirit of It's Always Sunny, when Greg was in the hospital before I had gone to this thing, I actually showed up in a green suit, like, you know, the whole green face thing, like Charlie Day doing the Rain Man thing, just for fun. And it was really interesting to see how the staff at the hospital all reacted and said, okay, well, you know, you obviously don't have to wear a mask because you got this thing on, but, you know, here's the booties and all the things that you have to do to go into the clean room type of environment at a children's hospital and cancer ward, right? I lived in one of those, not the children's ward, but a clean room. But you probably had some people, hopefully, trying to introduce a little levity into your life too. So the power of humor to get you through those moments, I think was pretty strong. And you're a funny guy. You have a funny podcast. It's so necessary. I'll tell you too, in the clean room, I had two friends of mine who I'm still good friends with them now. Of course, they had to do like the cap and the mask and the gloves and the gown and the booty things and whatnot. And they just, they came in and they did like a fashion show. 
they were like runway walking around my room in their little like PPP outfits. <laughs> it was so stupid. <laughs> that give you a laugh. Yeah, it's so important. And I know that that's like, laughter is the best medicine. Like, oh, kill me. But like, it's true. It does actually like, there's something to it. And maybe it's not inner healing really. But again, it's to be able to look back and retroactively appreciate that moment for what it was. Exactly. Now, I know we have limited time. We both had our own forms of technical issues today, but I really would love to just ask you one question about the book because I haven't had a chance to read it myself. What are the other illnesses you're talking about in the book? So to reference Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses, which is the title of the book, Cancer Obvious, Musical Theater is my whole background. It's what I grew up loving and doing. I did musical theater professionally for a very long time in my life. It's still one of my true loves. But the other chronic illnesses is, first of all, to reference that musical theater is a chronic illness, because it is. But then also, we've sort of touched upon a little bit now, is drinking as a coping mechanism and alcoholism, body dysmorphia, which is definitely something that happens when you're in a treatment that is changing the way you look. You know, I went in pretty like 25 hot and muscly, and I did not come out that way. And so there was a lot of mental juxtapositions there that I was fighting with because a lot of the medications make you bloated and fat and some of them make you really skinny and terrible. And there's just this huge swing. So like, that's another one. Obviously, general mental health is one of them, like the depths of despair that you can fall into because of being in a situation like that. I don't know if there's necessarily like a bullet point list about all the ones that I'm talking about, but I do touch specifically upon addiction, body dysmorphia and mental health. Because those are all things that you deal with as a patient that I think people who are not patients don't really realize. Like body dysmorphia when you're in the hospital fighting for your life, why would that matter? But to the patient, it does. That component of it is like really articulating the patient experience from a more sentimental point of view is something that I've had medical professionals reach out to me and say that reading this has completely changed their bedside manner and approach to patients. Because it's, again, like, we're joking off camera about how I talked about, like, masturbating in the hospital because, like, I was 25 and a boy and, like, duh, and how that did not go well and I was caught and it was embarrassing and terrible. Like, things like that are things that people don't think of when they hear, oh, I have cancer. Like, no one's like, oh, of course you're, like, rubbing one out in in your hospital room. Like, no, these are all things that need to be talked about because sexual health is part of being a human, Well, I think you just summed up so many things right there. And I both want to be respectful of your time. And I'd also love to invite you back for a future discussion. I really think that you are dynamic, lovely. I love your story. And I can't wait to see how else you go and grow with your career and your life in New York. So congratulations on 11 great years. Thank you. I hope I get to know you for many, many more. I'll be here. (laughs) Now, to find out more about your work, I'm going to encourage people to go to your website, which is simply edwardmiskey.com. Are there any other places that you like to play that you encourage people to reach out? Yeah, I am pretty active on Instagram and TikTok. That's a lie. I'm very active on TikTok and Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find me at edwardmiskey. That's perfect. I'm at Karina Belizzi personally on TikTok. Not nearly as active as you, but I'll follow you there for sure. And I just want to say again, thank you so much for your time. I'll circle back soon. Sounds great. Thank you for joining me for this conversation today. Perhaps a break from the norm and also quite a fun time. It has been such a gas for me. 
Now to learn more about Edward Miskey and his work, just go to edwardmiskey.com or as always, you can visit show notes. There I include links to everywhere you can find him and social media, including his favored TikTok and Instagram pages. Now, I want to also remind people that on our website at caremorebebetter.com, you can find our complete transcripts. You can also find reference to past episodes in which we covered difficult topics like cancer. And also, while you're there, if you sign up for our newsletter, you will receive a five-step guide to help unleash your inner activist. This can really help organize your efforts around any project you're seeking to manage. It's something I developed with skills I learned at graduate school for my MBA. So take a page from my book and perhaps a resource or two to help educate you on what you can do to make a difference in your daily life. If you enjoyed today's episode and discussion, please subscribe wherever you're listening or watching this episode whether that be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or even on YouTube. Now, if you do subscribe, please click that bell to always. That way you're sure to be alerted the next time we drop an episode. Future episodes are going to delve back into climate science and other areas of social impact. We're going to take a bridge away from our focus on arts with a step into fintech, financial technology, and ways that we can actually help to support a cleaner and brighter future for people and planet, how we can invest in solutions and take away resources from things that might be more destructive. There are personal ways that you can contribute to these things as well. And so I'm excited about what's coming and I hope that you'll join me on that journey. Thank you listeners and watchers now and always for being a part of this podcast and this community because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, we can be better. We can even laugh while doing it and create our best lives along the way. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.